0: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hey, everyone, we've got a great interview for you this week with the legendary chess historian and author, Dr. Frank Brady, talking Bobby Fischer and his life experiences, meeting Bobby Fischer, being in Reykjavik, so much good stuff. So I think you'll enjoy it immensely as I did. I did want to clarify one thing from late in the interview. We started talking about the Queen's Gambit show on Netflix, and Frank mentioned that he would be giving a talk in affiliation with the Marshall Chess Club in New York City on Zoom. That listeners could attend and we weren't sure when the talk is, but it turns out it's Tuesday, November seventeenth at 7pm. So that's the day this podcast comes out. So there's a good chance by the time you listen to this, it will have already happened. But if you are listening and it hasn't happened yet it is free to anyone who registers and i'll put the registration in the show description the other thing i forgot to mention his most recent biography about bobby fisher endgame is a classic excellent book and in addition to all the other formats it is available on audiobooks so it's one of the few chess books that is well suited for audiobook that you can listen to when on the go. So highly recommend it if you haven't read it already. Uh, So without further ado, uh, please enjoy this interview with Dr. Frank Brady. Hello everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have quite a distinguished guest joining us this week. He is an author, a leading Bobby Fischer historian, the author of Bobby Fischer, Profile of a Prodigy, and Endgame, The Spectacular Rise and Fall of Bobby Fischer, which is an award-winning book and was the first book about a chess player on the New York Times bestseller list. He was the founding editor of Chess Life Magazine, former president of the Marshall Chess Club, um, a professor and the retired chairman of the Department of Mass Communications, Journalism, Television and Film at St. John's University. Um, And he is now joining us on the show, uh, 86 years of of age and still looking and sounding sharp in our little chat before we brought him in. So now let's welcome him to the show, Dr. Frank Brady. Thank you so much
1: for joining us. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to the talk.
0: Excellent. Yeah, I am super excited and there's so many directions we could go. I mean, you had such a distinguished career both in and outside of chess, but of course this is a chess podcast, so you can guess uh, that will be our primary focus. Um, So Frank, if you don't mind though, the first thing I wanted to hear about from all of your experiences and your writings was the fact that as you have written and said, you were Uh, You believe to be the first uh, chess player, chess fan or slash journalist to arrive in Reykjavik in 1972 for the famous match of the century between Bobby Fischer and Boris Spassky and the last to leave. And you attended every game in that absolutely historic match. So um, all these years later, I know you've written about it. I'm sure you've spoken about it. But what's the first thing you think of, Frank, when you think back on that experience?
1: Well, it was one of the greatest chess experiences in my life in that I witnessed, uh, in effect, the first American uh, uh, to become world's champion. It was uh, an incredible moment, and uh, I couldn't get enough of it. Uh, By the way, not only did I attend every game, I attended every adjournment, every press conference, and everything else that surrounded the tournament, the match. Uh, You know, Bobby was a spectacular figure and a controversial figure and uh, a bit of a friend, I would say, of mine. Uh, And, uh, you know, I followed his life uh, ever since he was a kid. And uh, now he was 29 years old and uh, he finally made it to the top. And I I was just so happy to be there. And it was quite a, uh, you know, the place was incredible. There were hundreds of journalists and reporters. And, you know, it was like being, in Lisbon during the World War II, people <laughs> rumors and conferences and uh, interviews. It was an exciting place to be.
0: It's amazing. I mean, we've had so many guests uh, come on the show and talk about how that match touched their lives, altered the trajectory of their lives because of the, the chess boom that followed, which I, I think we'll, we'll discuss in due time. Um, but first, let's just get a little more on-the-ground detail. So, for, first of all, Frank, under what auspices were you there? Was it just because you were had a friendly relationship with Bobby, with Bobby, and were a friend, or was it in no, like a
1: reporter's capacity? Not at all. Uh, I went uh, as a correspondent for PBS, uh, working with Shelby Lyman, wow. who was on the air uh, in Channel 13 in New York City. Shelby knew I was going to go to Iceland because I was uh, reworking a new biography of Bobby Fischer, bringing the book up to the end of the the World championship. And uh, so he brought me up to PBS and introduced me there, and uh, uh, they made a a deal with me to to, to go to Iceland, and they gave me a car when I got there uh, for my use and paid me a ridiculously small amount of money, I might say, uh, and uh, I worked for PBS calling Shelby after every single game and every adjour- adjournment, and sometimes I'd get on the air. Sometimes he would. it would just be color, you know, uh, background that I gave him on what was going on uh, at the match and uh, the, the controversies that uh, appeared. Uh, also, a number of other places, uh, ABC TV, Wide World of Sports hired me to do one session, which hmm. was uh, interesting, uh, and uh, uh, Harold Schoenberg, who was the Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, columnist for the New York Times, uh, was working on front-page stories on the on the match. And in his very first uh, story, he made a mistake. It's just a minor mistake, but he made a mistake and it got published. And, and nobody pointed it out. And I said, Harold, uh, you know you made a mistake there. And he said, what do you mean you know, and I pointed it out. And he said, "My God, you're right. It was, you're, you're absolutely right." He said, "I'll tell you what. Will you please read every one of my copies before it goes to the Times? But you cannot tell the New York Times that you're doing it, and you cannot tell my wife when she shows up. I don't <laughs> want anybody to know." And he paid me a very small amount of money to do it again. So it, it was. Uh, I was working on a number of fronts. I was also just. Uh, there was this radio station in San Francisco, and I was giving c- commentary to them. So, uh, And on top of all of it, I was writing my new book on Bobby Fischer, my new biography of Bobby Fischer.
0: Which uh, was that Profile of a Prodigy?
1: No, that that had already come out. Okay. Uh, and uh, this brought his life up to the point of winning the world's championship. The new book would, uh, brought his life up to uh, the point of winning the world's championship. And of course, I would have had to write that he lost it if he lost it. But uh, So, uh, you know, I was right on the scene. I was writing every day, writing every night, uh, and also doing some of these broadcast things.
0: And of course, this match is famed for all of its twists and turns, and and the the world watching. So, what was life like on the ground? Was everyone talking about it ev- everywhere you went? And what was like? Were you in a reporter's room? I'd just like to get as many details as possible about yeah. it.
1: I, I had press credentials, and I was in a reporter's room. Of course, I could stroll out of that and walk into the auditorium of Lagosdale Hall, <laughs> uh, and uh, which I did. I went to the press conferences that were given. Uh, Bobby gave no press conferences on, on his own uh that i can remember uh but his team he had a a few people working for him uh fred kramer who was then the president of the united states chess federation was there and a few others my friend don schultz who eventually did died recently of the covid uh was was there as well and uh Dr. Irva, the president of FIDE, was giving conferences, and the president of the Icelandic Chess Federation. So there were conferences all the time. When you walked into the hotel loft leader where Bobby was staying, I mean, the lobby was filled with people talking about what's going to happen next. Is Bobby going to drop out? Is Bobby going to stay <laughs> Uh What's going on? Uh, you know, uh, are the Russians cheating? Uh, is Bobby cheating? I mean, it was... Uh, it was, was fun. I mean, I used to just get up in the morning and, very, and get into my little Volkswagen, which I could hardly fit into, and and drive there uh, and, and park myself into the lobby of the hotel. <laughs> you know, interview people and talk to people and talk to the other journalists who were there and get information.
0: And you've written in Endgame, I'd just like to, to share the following quote you say, I, I've been following Bobby Fisher's life story from the first time we met. At a chess tournament when he was a child and I was a teen, all the way to his grave in the remote and windswept countryside of Iceland. Over the years, we played hundreds of games together, dined in Greenwich Village restaurants, traveled to tournaments, attended dinner parties, and walked the streets of Manhattan for hours on end. He was light years ahead of me in chess ability, but despite the yawning gap that separated us, we found ways to bond. Uh, and I know that in later years, as you write about, the bond may not have been as strong, unfortunately. Um, but what was the state of your relationship with, uh, with Bobby at, at that point? Um, when... Dur-
1: during, the, during the match, there yeah. was no relationship. We didn't talk during the entire time. I, I didn't try to interview him. He was you know, angry with me at uh, writing the very first book because I mentioned in the first book that he was Jewish. And he didn't want me to do that. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I, I mean, I'm sorry I did it. I, I'm sorry that he was angry about it, but I felt it was a biography and I, I, I thought it was important to put it in. And so uh, I, didn't, I didn't really uh, talk to him. He didn't give interviews to anybody actually. And uh, uh, he had a few friends, Jack Collins, of course, uh, he was there, Lombardi, Larry Evans and others that came. Evans was there just for about a week But Collins was there for the whole time. Lombardi was there for the whole time. And they had a a suite. Collins, you know, had like almost a little chess salon in his suite. People would go there and analyze the game afterwards and stuff. Bobby would be there playing games. But uh, no, there was no relationship with Bobby during the match at all with me.
0: Okay. Um, and since you mentioned the fact that you'd written that he was Jewish, I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, sort of uh, topics I, I want to discuss. But one of them I was corresponding with my friend, FM Donny Ariel, um, and he, he and, and other like chess historians and extreme chess fans have submitted some questions that I'll be getting to um, in the course of the interview. But uh, Donny was wondering. So, of course, there's the question of uh, Fisher's father. Um, which I know you've written about at length, but I'd still, if you don't mind, like to hear you discuss that a little bit. And in a related matter, sort of how he reconciled the fact that he was Jewish with, uh, obviously, his, the anti-Semitic views that became uh, he became increasingly um, known for, unfortunately, later in his life.
1: Well, uh, it's a very complicated question. I try to tackle it in the book, but... Uh, and in my life and in my relationship to Bobby, uh, Bobby's father—I I had always thought that Bobby's father was Gerhard Fisher, uh, who was Jewish, and who uh, split with uh, uh, Mrs. Fisher. Uh, they divorced, and that uh, and she was having an affair with another man uh, back in 1942. And a lot of people, Paul Nemenyi, and a lot of people think that Paul Nemenyi, a Hungarian physicist, was the father, and that how could Gerhard Fischer really be the father since he never came to the United States? But Mrs. Fischer, uh, and you can this could be found in her passport, actually <clears throat> did go to Mexico uh, X number of months, nine or 10 months before <laughs> Bobby was born, to meet... Gerhard, probably to get money from him because he was not supporting Bobby. And uh, she claimed to a social worker, and I found this in the FBI file, that they had an assignation at that time. And uh, that uh, it's possible she didn't know who the real father was uh, because she was seeing this other man at the same time. Uh, the other man did help out financially. Uh, and, uh, and he was Jewish. And, of course, Mrs. Fisher was Jewish, but not an observant Jew. So uh, Bobby, you know, felt he, uh, he was mistreated by the Jewish chess community in New York City <clears throat> and who favored Reshevsky over him. And he again began to start to blame the Jews for almost everything. You know, David Mamet wrote a very interesting book about self-hating Jews. I recommend that you read it. If you That indeed, it's not only Jews, but other people as well who are, quote, in the minority. There are some that just cannot bear to be in that minority. And so they're going to find all kinds of ways to uh, reject their own, Identity in that, and that's what happened to Bobby. After a while, he, he was saying he wasn't Jewish. He was never circumcised. That is true, but his mother—you know—in those days, a number of people weren't circumcised at that point, and it wasn't done for Ju- Jewish reasons or anything. But they didn't believe in it, so I mean, he used that as a, a proof that, in effect, that he really wasn't Jewish. Yet, on the other hand, um, Carl Berger. A master who belonged to the Marshall Chess Club claimed that uh, uh, Bobby was studying uh, the Torah to we get and get bar mitzvahed. Um, there's uh, uh, a player, <coughs> a, a chess collector, David Delucia, who probably has one of the most famous chess collections of memorabilia in the world, uh, has uh, a chess set that uh, he claims Uh, was a bar mitzvah gift to Bobby. Uh, So, yeah, I could see that. And this is speculation on my part. I could see Mrs. Fisher, who wasn't really observant, but still wanted her son to be bar mitzvah, had a uh, a minion at her home, you know, uh, uh, and uh, and, and taught Bobby some Hebrew enough to, to, to... to become a bar Mitzvah boy and, and Bobby just either forgot forgot that he did it or just repressed it. But, but Bobby Fisher was a Jew.
0: Right. And since his dad wasn't around who, whichever individual it was, maybe it wasn't maybe it didn't consume him that much. but do you have a sense of who he who Bobby thought his father was?
1: Well, uh, that also is complicated. Because uh, he never, according to Gardar Severenson, who was his closest friend in Iceland before he died, took him to the hospital, arranged the burial when he did die. According to Gardar Severinson, he never denied that Paul Nemendi was his father uh, when, when it was brought up. But he never liked to talk about it. I mean, I brought up the question of the father a few times with him. And he just, you know, he brushed me off. He didn't want to talk about who his father was. On the other hand, there was a rumor. I mean, you know, there's a lot of rumors that didn't get into my book or that I, I don't even like to share, but that, that when Bobby was going to Germany, when he was living in Hungary and he was going to Germany with Benko, that's true on, because uh, Benko was playing in one of the German leagues there. And then when they reached Berlin, Benko would go his way and Bobby would go his the rumor was that he was trying to search for his father uh-huh. because Gerhard Fischer had moved back to Berlin from Chile where he had been living all his life. Whether that's true, I don't know.
0: Yeah. I think you do. You do at least touch on it in Endgame. Yeah. Um, I've been re I reread it recently, obviously uh, in anticipation of, uh, of this interview and uh, my last question on the, the father thing. So, okay. He, he he didn't like to talk about and possibly knew, possibly didn't know whether his father was a Fisher or Nemeni, but did he know that if, did he think of uh, Fisher, his father as uh, Hans Fisher as Jewish as well, or because obviously if, if all three parents, if all three, if both perspective dads are Jewish in addition to the mother, then he's a hundred percent aware that he's, um, 100% Jewish.
1: Well, I don't know about that. I I I don't know how that he. I never heard him deny that Hans Fischer was Jewish. But as I said, he didn't talk so much about who his parent was or was not, or the parental parent. Uh, so. I, it's possible that I asked Mrs. Fisher that one time, you know, this is before I ever even considered writing a book, but you know, when I knew her, when, when he was a kid, I might've asked it. that came up. She didn't like to talk about it either. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know. I, I, he probably knew that Hans Gerhardt was a Jew and, uh, uh, and Paul Nervani was definitely Jewish. Okay. And, and Mrs. Fisher and, and when Mrs. Fisher got remarried, she married someone who is Jewish, who's uh uh buried in a Jewish cemetery. I mean, you know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, well, thank you for for discussing that. Why don't we uh talk a little more about what just what his personality was like? I mean, obviously uh you're friendly with uh I am John Donaldson who has a new tome out about Fisher. And I'm, I'm excited. John's been on the show, um, just obviously, an encyclopedia of chess history with, like yourself, a particular interest in and knowledge of Bobby Fisher. And he recently did an interview with uh, GM Grandmaster Jesse Cry of uh, Chess Dojo, where he was saying that he felt like Bobby Fisher had many personalities over the course of his life. Um, was that your experience as well? And when you think of your times with him, especially in his younger days, uh, how, do you, how do you characterize his personality?
1: Well, I think we all have many personalities. You know, uh, 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 Virginia Woolf wrote one biography of uh, the artist Christopher Fry, and she said, uh, well, you know, uh, as a biographer, you, you might be able to try to capture two or three Kinds of personalities that a person may have, but indeed, uh, most people might have as many as a thousand different. Right. You know, Bobby was—I'll uh, tell you—you you know, he was—he was, he was uh, generous, and yes, he was pars- parsimonious. He was—he uh, could be gentle; he could be cruel. Uh, he, he had so many different elements. Uh, I wouldn't call him schizophrenic. You know, I, I'm not implying that. But uh, you never knew what what you were going to get each time you met Bobby. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, he, he once, uh, I was walking down Fifth Avenue with him going near, I think we were going to the club, uh, the Marshall Chess Club, and uh, but we were going to eat beforehand. And uh, I was suggesting a particular restaurant, and he just turned and, and he said, I'm going You know, he walked away, you know, like without discussing it. He said, I'm going to Holiday Inn or wherever it was, (laughs) Uh, uh, Howard Johnson's I met. And uh, in other words, he just did what he wanted to do. And uh, he could be very abrupt and rude. Uh, But I found him at his best to be a friend. Uh, and, uh, and he had all the elements that, uh, that, that a friend might have. At one point I was broke. I didn't have much money. I was trying to launch a magazine called chess world. And now yes, yeah. it went out with only three issues of it. I was doing it on less than a shoestring, a half of a shoestring. And indeed, uh, he asked me, I didn't, he said, you need any money. I have some money. I can lend you some money. I mean, None of my relatives said that to me. <laughs> uh, That's interesting. It was, it, was, it was no, I didn't take it, but you know, it was it was very very generous and nice of him to do that. Then he would bring me gifts when he came back from international tournaments. and He'd bring me a tie or bring me a this or that or the other thing. Uh, and uh, so uh, I found him to be a friend. And then, but if you crossed him in the ways that you know, my putting the, the fact that he was Jewish in my book. It was really the first book written about him. Uh, he didn't want to talk to me after that.
0: Yeah, that must have been difficult. Um, so, a, a, um, a couple follow-ups. So, number one, you mentioned obviously he was. It's definitely fair to characterize him as eccentric at minimum. Um, did you did you see his? So, you first encountered him as a teen. When did you first to get to know him? And was his was he as eccentric as in? the earliest days that you knew him?
1: I would say it was eccentric that, you know, I first saw um, uh, Bobby. I just saw him at at, uh, the U.S. Amateur Championship in Asbury Park. It was not a team championship. It was an individual championship. About 125 players, something like that. And his mother brought him, his mother was there, and Carmine Nigro, his teacher, brought him there. And I never talked to him, but I was watching. Everybody was watching him because he was so tiny. Hmm. You know, uh, much, he grew up to be like six foot two, but, you know, he was so tiny at that time. And it was a novelty to have such a little kid playing. And I talked to his mother at that time. Anyway, and then in the, uh, the tournament on the Upper West Side, um uh, which Lombardi won. I played in it terribly, <laughs> uh, but but uh, Bobby was there and I, you know, I, I'm not sure I even talked to him then. When I really started talking to him was when I became the business manager of the United States Chess Federation. I was working for the United States Chess Federation full-time and Mrs. Fisher brought him up to the office and she was trying to get him to uh, get money so that he could play in various tournaments. And so, and he, she kept coming back with him, and he was very shy. Uh, and, you know, he didn't meet my eyes and uh, he didn't say much, but I got to know him. When we really got to know him was when he played in the Fisher Spassky, uh, Fisher Ryshevsky match, rather. Uh, and uh, it blew up. Uh, it ended in a five-and-a-half, five-and-a-half tie, and uh, Fisher was forfeited for, for not showing up, uh, and that's a complicated story. It, it would take forever to discuss, but, uh, and I wrote editorials about him in support of him in Chess Life. I had started Chess Life magazine, and the uh, U.S. Chess Federation president and others w- didn't like it. And I actually lost my job over wow. it. Wow. And, uh, you know, I was scared because I was just starting a family at that point. And all of a sudden I had no job. And uh, the, uh, you know, in, in retrospect, maybe they were right. I, you know, maybe I should have kept my mouth shut. But uh, I, I believe that Bobby, even though he was a kid, should have been garnered more respect, and uh, he wasn't. They were treating him like, a, you know, uh, just a kid. So from that time on, all of a sudden, Bobby started coming to my apartment, and uh, we started hanging out together, and that's when we started to play five-minute chess, or I would play five minutes, and he would play two-minute chess, and he'd still beat me, of course, every game. Wow. Uh, so uh, and we and we bonded at that point.
0: So after those years, Frank, uh, how did how did your relationship evolve with with Bobby? Like I know you mentioned, um, you know, a lot of long walks with him, a lot of trips to to restaurants. Were those like coordinated um, uh, gatherings, or would it be like you saw him at the chess club and ended up hanging out together, sort of thing?
1: He he rarely ever called me. Sometimes I would call him, but when I was living in the village uh, right after that F- uh, Fischer-Roszewski match, uh, he would come, just show up in my apartment, and he liked coming there because I, <laughs> I don't know if he liked coming there to see me or because I had a lot of different chess magazines and right. books, and he'd plunk himself down in my living room, sit in my butterfly chair, which was popular in the 1960s, and uh, uh, open the the various chess magazines that I was getting from all over the world and go through them. And some of them he would just say, it's all right if I have them. And I'd say, yeah, you can take them. No, no, I haven't read that yet, Bobby. And then my wife was a second grade school teacher. She wasn't around too much during the afternoons, not at all. And then I'd say, Bobby, where are you eating? And he said, I don't know. know. What are you doing tonight? I don't know. know." (laughs) let's go, you know, let's go and get something to eat. And we'd go off to uh, the Mexican gardens or uh, one of my favorite restaurants, whatever, or a favorite restaurant of mine. And then we'd often then go to the Marshall chess club and start to play chess. And uh, I don't know why he played with me. I mean, uh, you know, I wasn't such a bad player. I was like a class A player, you know, but... uh, and I wish that what I had learned from him had rubbed off, but I didn't rub off because we played, you know, speed chess, and it was crazy. I didn't think I learned very much out of it. I think I'm much better in time trouble now than I ever was. <laughs> Other than that, I can't relate what what I've learned.
0: Well, I know they. Um- you know, you. I know you've been interviewed by uh, Fred Wilson twice. I'm friendly with him. He's been on this podcast as well, and uh, his his archive of interviews is uh, available for uh, Patreon subscribers of Perpetual Chess. So I when was that?
1: Do you remember? What so you year? had
0: two interviews with him. I believe they were 2003 and 2006. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, but you tell the story of the chess advice, the chess improvement advice that Fisher gave you oh, in yes. one of yes. those interviews. So I'm sure my listeners would love to hear that.
1: Well, you know, uh, my brother was a great pool player and he taught me how to play. I was never anywhere near as good as he. Uh, and I used to like to play pool. And somehow I mentioned it to Bobby and uh, he asked if I would teach him, and I did. Uh, you know, an X number of lessons. Maybe I gave him six or eight lessons uh on you know all the rudiments how to hold a cue stick, what to do how to line up a shop and so forth and, uh, how to get english on your ball <laughs> and uh on your cubes and and uh once when we we're walking home from that i said hey bobby how about from my since i'm teaching you to play well how about me teaching you are uh, you teaching me how to play give me some lessons he said okay for the first lesson Read every column in MCO, Modern Chess Openings, including the footnotes, every column. (laughs) And not just read them, he he said, understand them. So I said, oh, my God. I said, okay, so what's the second lesson, Bobby? He said, "Do it over again."
0: <laughs> it's an amazing story. So, but these are basically just like reams of opening
1: theory, right? Well, thousands and thousands and thousands of lines, and uh, and it shows that's the you know it's a good story because that's the way Bobby was. He absorbed everything. He told Shelby Lyman that he read every single chess book in the Brooklyn Public Library. And the Brooklyn Public Library at Grand Army Plaza is one of the great libraries in New York City. It's got thousands of books. He said he read every one of them and took from them what was good. And uh, I believe him. I mean, he always, always had books. Uh, And there were were other players, Ruben Fine. I remember Ruben Fine, by the way, I really go back. He was actually my psychoanalyst.
0: Oh, amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah. He but he always had under both of his arms, Ruben would have any chess book he could find <laughs> under his arms, walking the street, coming into the marshal, or whatever.
0: It's interesting because these days a lot of chess trainers would push back against the notion that the best way to get better at chess is to memorize tons of opening theory. But yeah. on the other hand, it sounds like what you're getting at is like the the I mean, in addition to whatever talent he had and whatever intelligence he had, which I also want to discuss, but it, it was mainly just like an insatiable appetite for chess combined with a memory more so than specifically MCO.
1: Yes. Uh, he wanted everything. And in, in, in terms of chess, I mean, he really studied the game. He would the f- <laughs> first, the last thing he would do at night is look at a board next to his bed, look at a position, move the pieces around. So forth. when he woke up the next morning, he continued doing that when he took a bath he had a, his mother would put in a board across the bathtub with the chest set on it and he would uh, he would constantly he walked around with a little pocket sat in his in his hands and he played he by the way he said that he got that from Elekin. Uh, oh that idea yeah you know, that idea of having that little pocket that but he could play the game. Uh, you know, his his friend, he had a close chess friend by the name of Bernard Zuckerman, who was an international master. You may know the name. Yeah,
0: legendary New yeah. York figure.
1: Yeah, and when they would walk along the street to go out to get a bite to eat or something, and they would play a game. Yeah, <laughs> just walking around. Along the street. And he would do that. Also, he did it with Jack Collins, you know, so... Uh, uh, he really knew the game. He didn't need it. He really didn't need a board. <laughs> That's amazing.
0: Okay, Frank, I have one or two more questions on Bobby personally that I'd like to ask, and then we have a few from listeners. And then, of course, I'd like to get to some other topics as well, although this is um, amazing to hear your firsthand experience. So an- another question, Frank, that gets kind of batted around the internet, I suspect someone has asked you in the past. But um, in your opinion, did do you think that Bobby Fischer had Asperger's syndrome?
1: He may well have. Uh I've asked um, Stuart Margulies, who was a master, knew Bobby well and was a psychologist or is a, still a psychologist, a Columbia University PhD, uh, that, and he said, no, he didn't think Bobby had Asperger's. Ariel Mangarini, uh, 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 an American master and who was a psychiatrist who examined Bobby or talked to Bobby very early on and then knew Bobby and played Bobby later on in tournaments, said he didn't think there was any. Even he said, you know, he, the kid was neurotic, but, you know, almost we're all neurotic at some point. Right. Uh, you know, he, he wasn't really that much different. He was strange as he got older, you know, and his ideas, his political views, and the way, you know, he could treat people Uh, Sometimes he was really down, as I said, he could be cruel. And yet on the other hand, he could be friendly, truly friendly and nice to hang around with. Uh, You know, I could tickle his funny bone. I mean, I could get him to laugh a lot. Uh, He didn't get me to laugh so much with jokes, but I could get him to laugh.
0: Okay. And then there's also the question, which I, again, I know you're on the record, but I, I do think this, this stuff is important to discuss. The, the, the question of Fisher's IQ. Could you tell the story of how you became sort of the primary source of uh, Fisher's uh, genius
1: level IQ? Okay. Uh, yes. A number of people have uh, questioned that, um, but uh, there was a man by the name of Milton Hanauer, who was the president of the Marshall Chess Club twice Marshall Chess Club champion, Uh, wrote several chess books, including uh, Chess Made Simple, I think it's called, uh, that became well-known. And Milton uh, was the principal of a high school in the Bronx, if I'm not mistaken, and he knew someone in the great advisor's office or the administration office of Erasmus High School where Bobby went and apparently erasmus gave iq tests at that time i took my iq test in grammar school in the eighth grade and they uh uh announced it when the results came in they would call everybody and say you know in front of everybody and tell wow like you was and it was really interesting got <laughs> the lowest iq in my eighth grade class Turn out to be a multimillionaire successful you know right on the radio and the person who got the highest went nowhere but nevertheless, uh, so he asked this great advisor, could you possibly do it? it? was probably illegal for the man to do it. Nowadays, they would never do something like that The man looked up and he said it was 180. So uh, that's my source.
0: Okay, and what were you, so? What were your interactions with? Obviously, his his chess talent and abilities precede them. We don't need you to describe those, but what were his his intellectual powers like generally? I mean, I know that in his younger days, he sort of you push back against the notion that he was like a savant, but um, did he have a curiosity about other topics as as like a teen and in his twenties?
1: Not too much, no. Uh, you know, it, the, the key to Bobby was this exclusivity that he had toward the game. The game, chess was the whole thing in his life. Everything else was ignored. I mean, you could get him into a conversation sometimes about politics or science or something, but, but not not much. He, he wanted to talk about chess. Maybe that's why he liked me. I like to talk about it too. Hmm. but. You know, I had other interests, but indeed, uh, I don't think that has anything to do with his IQ. He was, he was exclusive uh, to chess. And so uh, it wasn't until he reached the world's championship at the age of 29, where he then said, now I can devote myself to other things. And he began to read other things. Unfortunately, some of the other things that he read were right. not particularly good, you know, anti-Semitic literature and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, he uh, he was interested in ideas. He wanted to talk to people. He didn't want to only talk about chess. Uh, Gardar Severinson told me that, uh, what the heck was it? a noblest was in Reykjavik a man by the name of Robert Mundell, who was the father of the Euro and who uh, was the person who sort of invented or wrote about, championed supply side economics, was in Reykjavik and mentioned that he'd like to meet Bobby and Bobby said, let's do it. And they met at a restaurant, the three of them, Gardar and Mundell and Bobby. And Bobby immediately started to ask Mundell questions about economics. And he could talk about it. And he knew about it because he had been reading, uh, again, from the time about 29 up to his death at the age of 64. And uh, he'd read books on philosophy, history, all kinds of stuff.
0: And you also wrote in Endgame that at 29, after winning the world championship, he, he expressed maybe more interest in finding a, uh, a romantic partner?
1: Yeah. He said, now I'm ready to do that. Absolutely. And uh, it took him a long time to find <laughs> right. I mean, he had various assignations and various uh, relationships, but it wasn't until, um, what was name, Zeta, Rajitska came along, wrote him a letter, and yeah, changed the course of of chess, uh, of so, chess yeah. history.
0: Yes. Um, since since that led to the the rematch with Spassky. Um, so, would would he talk about women much when you knew him? I mean, you already mentioned he was primarily interested in chess, yeah, but
1: to some extent, but you know, not not anything special. She um, "I can't remember a name. There was a chess player who brought him to a brothel once."
0: Right, yeah, uh, in Argentina. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on, uh, on who uh, it was as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, and uh, I just can't remember the man's name, but Bruno de Brato said that uh, it was his, Bobby's first time with a woman, and he came out, and supposedly Bobby said, ah, I wasn't as good as chess. <laughs> 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 um,
0: yeah, okay, so, Frank, we've got – um some questions from friends and uh, supporters of the podcast. So uh, a couple of them, Fisher related. So I'd like to read you those, but first we're gonna take a break and hear from our sponsors, chessable.com. If you want to find out more about the life, the legacy, and the tragedy of the life of Bobby Fischer, there is no greater authority than Dr. Frank Brady. But if you want to learn about the chess of Bobby Fischer, then Chessable.com has some great places to start, including with My Great Predecessors Part 4 by former world champion Gary Kasparov. He tells great stories about Fischer and his contemporaries, as well as going over his brilliant games. There's also a tactics training course on Bobby Fischer, a strategy training course on bobby fisher and of course all of these chessable offerings have move trainer technology to help you remember these amazing moves and patterns that bobby played so in addition to all of their other courses chessable.com can help you learn about fisher so go to chessable and check it out and we are back and my first uh patreon supporter question for you frank is from friend of the podcast uh, friend and supporter chris wainscott Uh, Chris, a big uh, Fisher file in his own right. And uh, Chris says, first of all, I've read both versions of profile, both versions of profile of a prodigy as well as Endgame, and found that all three to be enjoyable and informative. My question concerns the log cabin chess club and its founder, E4E locks. I'm sure I said that wrong. Can you share any stories about the club? Some chess fans may be familiar with the early Fisher connection there, though many likely are not. In the interest of those not familiar with the organization or with its founder, perhaps a Fisher story would be in order. However, for those of us who are at least relatively familiar with the Long Cabin Club, perhaps you could also share a less well-known story. And then Chris says, thank you so much for your writings and thank you for coming on this podcast, all of which helped maintain the pantheon of chess history, which, of course, I echo Chris's thanks there.
1: Well, I knew Fari well. Uh, he, uh, The Log Cabin Chess Club... Located, I think it was West Orange, New Jersey. I hope New Jersey will forgive me if I have the town wrong. But any event, he was very wealthy. Uh, He was a graduate of Princeton, but he didn't act like an educated man for some reason. Didn't talk like that. Really interested in chess. He was a weak player and he ran the club in his home. It was a large home. Wasn't a mansion, but just a very large home. And uh, he was always uh, having chess players in and he had a beautifully decorated wood paneled basement uh, that looked like a log cabin. And that's how it got its name, the log cabin chess club. And uh, because he was playing all the time and having tournaments there all the time. And also, anybody who was sort of down and out and was looking for a room, he had extra bedrooms, and they could stay there. He was driving his wife and his two kids crazy, so or oh, maybe not the two kids, but certainly the wife. And so she moved out. He had a country house in Old Lyme, Connecticut. She moved out of the house just so that Chess could take the whole, uh, take it over. So uh, he uh, he had an old station wagon. And he would drive all over the country with uh, six or seven of his players uh, and uh, they would play matches all over the place. Fari himself uh, played in uh, just about every U.S. Open championship that I could remember. In fact, uh, he died playing in the uh, U.S. Open that was held at San Juan, Puerto Rico. He was a strange guy in many ways. He seemed to be Had Nazi proclivities. I mean, he wore a little swastika on his lapel uh, some of the time. Uh, Some of the time, he's dressed in Lederhosen and Mm -hmm. uh, with sort of an Alpine hat, you know. And uh, uh, he he was very, very German. Uh, But I found him to be to have a good heart. Uh, He was. Uh, when I was at the U.S. Chess Federation, always looking for people to donate money for teams that are going here, there, and everywhere or for individuals, Fari always came through, I mean, not with thousands, but with hundreds, almost all the time, I'd call him up and say, you know, Bobby needs $100 to go to this place or somebody needs, the team needs as much as you can do. And he would always come through. He backed, he was a good philanthropist for chess uh and um you know there were tournaments in there uh, you know things I, want, I don't even feel like i should tell about safari but he was <laughs> <laughs> he was he was a strange man and uh you know anybody who needed a bed in that house uh whoever they were he'd give it to them and uh he'd pick up meals i mean he had a Strange thing, he would say. If he took people to restaurants. He'd say, "Order whatever you want on the menu, but no alcohol." He would never huh. alcohol. <laughs>
0: That's no fun.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and you know, he kept saying he was the, the uh, Law Cabin Chess Club was the first chess club ever to visit Fairbanks, Alaska. Uh, the Lock Haven Club was the first to fly to Europe, whatever, and and he used to love being the first to do something, you know. And he himself, by the way, was a poor player. Huh. If there were two hundred and fifty people in the tournament, he'd come in about two hundred and thirty, something like that. But he loved the game, and he had a great time playing it. It's more important,
0: yeah. um, well, th- thank you for that. A couple other questions I want to get to. Um, This one is uh, Fisher-related from Brian Caron. And Brian is wondering, uh, he says, uh, what were pre-1972 Fisher's sane political views? Like, what did he think of the Kennedys or other 1960s presidents and parties? Um, And and then there's another one, but let's stop there.
1: He didn't, uh, again, he didn't talk about politics all that much. Uh, but uh, the, the things I remember about Kennedy is uh, he uh, would Bobby, you know, used to dress in, in corduroys and t-shirts and dungarees and stuff like that. And then Bingo, uh, uh influenced him. He said, you know, you're, you're a grandmaster. You should dress nicely. And Banco was very much into good clothing and good dressing. And he, he he took Bobby up to Little Hungry, which is a section in Manhattan, and it was a tailor there. And he the tailor started making him some bespoke, be be bespoke uh, clothing. And Bobby dressed like a after a while like a fashion plate. People mm-hmm. wouldn't recognize him. He would have his hair combed, parted nicely, and stuff. Any event. Uh, he, uh, we're talking about Kennedy or something, and he said, You know, I don't like the way he dresses. <laughs> <laughs> he has his hands in his pockets. That's no way to dress for the President of the United States. I mean, you know, it was so childish in some ways, critical. Uh, he also asked me, He said, Does, Do you think Kennedy plays chess? And I said, I don't know, but I'll find out. And I wrote Pierre Salinger, the, Kennedy's press secretary, and if the president played chess, and I got a letter back. I think I still have a copy of it, saying, uh, "No, I never saw. Well, I never saw him play chess, Mr. just said, but he he does play a mean game of checkers." Hmm. <laughs> and I disappointed him. So, um, I don't think that uh, Bobby was particularly grieving or mournful when Kennedy was assassinated. I mean, he just just went on his life. Okay.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, and then the second part of uh, Brian Karen's question is uh, says um, in 1968 Fisher went to De Tanya and lim- lamented his past and his quotes past anti-Semitism, calling it stupid. 1968 also coincided with a great leap in his strength. Did his peak strength coincide with peak sanity?
1: Uh, well, I don't think Bobby was insane. So uh, that, that that's you know I take issue with that question in terms of saying sanity. I don't think he was insane. Uh, but but I also think that his peak really came after Stockholm and then after uh, uh, playing uh, Petrosian and, uh, and off and Larson uh, and winning almost every single game and then winning the World Championship. I think that was his peak strength. So that was a little later than that. Uh, I'm not familiar with his about thinking that uh, that what he was saying about antisemitism was was stupid. I'm glad that he did say it, but I'm not familiar with that. Right. Uh, but he did, you know, he said things like, uh, at one point, when was it? Probably around 1964, I think he said to me, uh, it was almost as a non sequitur. He said, I wish this whole stuff was over. I said, what else? The whole complicated stuff. Of, he said, with the Russians, I just, it's the controversy and it's complicated, and I just wish I hadn't ever brought it up. <laughs> hmm. So he, you know, he could see that he had done wrong in certain things. So I'm glad that uh, he said he regretted about the, his anti Semitic remarks.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Obviously, those, if they did change, they changed back, unfortunately. So.
1: Yes, they um, did, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> By all means, they got worse.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and you mentioned, I believe, um, I think it was also in the Fred Wilson interview, that the, not just that you don't think Bobby was insane, but um, you you don't really think he suffered from mental illness. Is that, is that yeah.
1: still your feeling? Yeah, I don't think, you know, I mean, that makes it, in effect, worse when you look at you know, his political views and some of his other views. I mean, he seemed to have a mean streak in him. And, uh, you know, I, I don't share his political views in any right. way or form. So, uh, but I don't think he was insane uh, or, or really anywhere near it. Um, uh, unfortunately, the publisher of my book, Endgame, is, uh, said uh, on the cover, and I said, you can't do that. And I had no control over it. So, and, and they said, and I'm going to read it, uh, Bobby Fischer's remarkable and fall from America's brightest prodigy to the edge of madness. I don't think he actually was to the edge of madness. He was to the edge of perhaps gross neurosis.
0: Okay, interesting. And what about, obviously... In researching Endgame, you went to uh, Iceland um, and spoke to many of his friends and acquaintances from his late years. What kind of impression did they have of of his his late years?
1: Well, they were much more positive than most people about him because, you know, they were the ones who went to Japan and got him out of prison. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, Magnus Skulason, who was a psychiatrist, he was the head of an insane asylum. Uh, he was not Bobby's psychoanalyst or anything, but he became a friend of Bobby's, and he was with him at the time of death, uh, just before it. Uh, you know, he said he he thought he you know Bobby was misunderstood. He was a complicated character, and he, he was not a bad person. You know, I, I, he was, he was saying that. That bobby must have mellowed he didn't know bobby as a y- youngster uh but um, almost all the icelanders of course they, they were happy that that he became an icelandic citizen and they were proud of that fact you know and uh uh so they didn't they didn't look down him in any way okay um, and
0: one more Fish and Fisher question, this one is from Douglas Griffin, who I don't know if you've come across it, Frank, but he has a great historical chess blog with like lots of uh, Soviet era pictures and he does translating from Russian. Um, I don't believe that you're on Twitter, Frank, but he's uh, pretty active on a uh, chess Twitter. So I think you would enjoy his site. Um, so Doug asks, into it. what's that? I would like to look into it. Okay, I'll send it to you. Um, so Doug asks, he says, Fisher's games were among the first master games I ever came familiar with, became familiar with. And later when I saw Boleslavsky's games, I was struck with how many of the latter's favorite opening lines were also favorites of Fisher's. For example, the King's Indian with black, the, the Roy Lopez, the Sozin against the Sicilian, two knights against the Karol Khan, etc. As a youngster, Fisher seemed to have followed Soviet chess quite close, closely, but did he ever mention Boleslavsky as a particular influence?
1: No, he never mentioned Boleslavsky to me. Uh, occasionally, he will mention he mentioned players like he mentioned Spassky, he mentioned Tall. Uh, I once asked him about Donner for some reason, and he said Donner is the weakest grandmaster in the world. I don't know how- he's not even a master, you know. I mean, he-, <laughs> <laughs> he said, "Well, you know, that's untrue. I mean, he was a grandmaster." Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I could see why Bobby would be influenced by Boleslavsky, who was a great opening theoretician. And he came out with a book uh, in Russian, uh, uh, his selected games in 1957. So, uh, and Bobby was influenced by the Russians. He was going to the always, he's living practically into the Four Continents bookstore on Fifth Avenue and 22nd Street, wherever it was. He'd go there every day that had Russian language uh, books and publications and he would read the right. We the, could read Russian. So I would, I would have, I can't be sure. I didn't see it in his library, but uh, I'm sure he had Boleslavsky's book. And and of course he would have seen Boleslavsky's game. So my answer is that he probably was influenced, but he never mentioned.
0: Okay. Interesting. And you mentioned Spassky and I know you, again, in, in end game, you have a few quotes from him. It sounds like in addition to, um, of course, Spassky and Fischer having uh, very friendly relations through their lives. You, you got some uh, good good input from Spassky. Are are you still? Do you still ever hear from him?
1: No, no. I wrote to him. Of course, I saw him and met him, and he was courteous. Unlike the other Russians, I might add, he was courteous to me. Uh, he was a gentleman, he, you know, he was like a Russian Prince, he really was. <laughs> right. uh, he, you know, he really had manners. It's like he came from royalty somehow, uh, very, very nice, well-spoken man. Uh, and I, so I talked to him in, in, uh, Reykjavik. That was the first time I had ever met him. Uh, but then when I was researching the book, I wrote to him and he answered a couple of letters and, it was, and that's where I got information that I put into the book. Uh, and you know when when Bobby died, he was quoted as saying, uh, uh, "He sent Einar, uh, or actually it's Einar Einar Einarsson in Reykjavik. Uh, My brother has died. I mean, he really had affection for Bobby, even though he lost the championship to Bobby. And uh, and then, of course, he you know had played the rematch in 1992, but." Uh, uh, I don't know, what what else do you want to know about uh, Spassky and Fisher? Oh, one once you know, he said when Fisher was in prison, he said, they should put me in prison with a chess set. It's just me and Bobby. Aww, that's so and nice. Said, no, I, something like, I'd rather have a woman, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow, that's that's amazing. Yeah, and I, I know, I remember in Endgame, you say in the 92 match, when at some point it looked like Spassky um, had an opportunity to sort of um, put some pressure on Bobby in terms of his um prospects for winning the match. You felt like maybe Spassky didn't even really, like he had mixed feelings about the idea of his winning the match because he wanted to bring Fischer back into the chess world.
1: Well, yes, and that brings up something else, which is, again, this is a a rumor. Uh, About a year and a half before the 92 match, I ran into a, a lawyer who lived in the Upper West Side here in Manhattan, who I knew by the name of Darnay Hoffman, controversial man, uh, but a lawyer. And he, he had been trying, I think he was working with the Geraldo Rivera uh, show to try to get an interview with Bobby. And uh, he said, have you heard there's going to be a, a fischer Spassky match? So I said, what are you talking about? Fischer hasn't played in almost 20 years. He says, no. He said, it's going to be a first Spassky match. I said, how do you know that? I can't tell the, the source, he said. And I said, so uh, how is it coming about? He said, Spassky has agreed to throw the match so that Bobby would win. And he's Spassky is getting a tremendous amount of money to do it. I said, I absolutely do not believe that. I think it's untrue uh spasky was not the kind of person who would do that no he had too much pride and for, uh, for his own reputation so i just throw i i shouldn't throw out rumors like that because who knows but on the other hand when spasky did say that to me in the letter that he had misgivings uh, you know it dragged back to the conversation i had with darnay Hopman a year and a half before that
0: yeah that's interesting okay. but it seems like who would think that he needed to throw the match in advance i mean yeah, yeah. Because I remember when, before Fischer came back, people, I mean, obviously his games were of a decent quality against, in the return match against Spassky, but nowhere near his peak. But before then, sort of when chess players sort of gossiped and speculated as they love to do, people felt like if he came back, he would still be, you know, world-class. Yes. Um, So it'd be weird to arrange him throwing it in advance.
1: Exactly. And uh, and of course, Fisher was not the old Fisher. Right. But he you know, he still played a pretty good game.
0: Yeah. 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 Not so bad. Um, So I could talk about Fisher forever, Frank, but there's so many other topics. So let's hop into the one last question from Brian Karen, which is uh, he says to ask you to share your favorite non Fisher chess related story or stories, if any uh, jump to mind.
1: That's a hard question to answer because there have been so many stories. My life has been so wrapped around chess. But what I like is that uh, Marcel Duchamp, one of the world's uh, most controversial, in many ways, artists and most famous uh, artists, uh, was a great and loyal member of the Marshall Chess Club. He belonged at the very beginning until his death. And uh, he loved the Marshall so much that he moved across the street, right, literally across the street. Wow. And uh, he invited me over to dinner to his house one night. And uh, his his wife, uh, Tini, who was the daughter-in-law of Renoir, uh, married to Renoir's son and then married to later on, made the dinner, but she didn't eat with us for some reason. Just the two of us had the d- quick dinner. And then he said, okay, how about a game? And I said, okay. And, you know, he was a very humble, nice guy. And we got to an end game and where uh, he was better. But if I could seize the opposition, there would be nothing he could do. It would have to be a draw. There would be no way he could promote. And uh, he said, oh, in his slight French, accent, said, oh, you know, the opposition. <laughs> and I said, yeah, you understand that. I said, what? is there to understand he said oh no it's very complicated he said you know i wrote a book about it i said really he said yes would you like a copy i said okay and right there in his living room there was a closet he opened the closet and from floor to ceiling and from wall to wall must have been a thousand copies of the book that he wrote on the opposition of of the sister squares and uh you autographed it for me. And somewhere in the jumble of my house or in my storage rooms, I still have that book somewhere.
0: That's amazing.
1: collector's item. But, uh, I, you know, I, I, I like that because it was, I wasn't even familiar with the book.
0: Is it well known that he
1: wrote this book? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty well known. Okay. But I, I don't know if you can get one in English. I really don't. This was in French. Huh.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And, yeah, you describe in your book, I mean – often when you were walking around with Fisher, it was in the, the east or the west village. And of course, this was kind of a very bohemian time. I just can't imagine sort of the the intersection of the uh, the artists and the intellectuals and the chess players and the vagabonds that you must have experienced in those
1: days. Oh, it was incredible. And, and you know, Duchamp said something that I, that I always liked. He said, uh, all chess players are artists, not all artists are chess players, but all chess players are artists. And it's an interesting philosophy. That's how he looked upon. That's how Duchamp looked upon the game. Uh, And that's how I've always tried to look at the game. When I enter the Marshall, to me, I'm entering, you know, a place where artists perform.
0: That's cool to hear. And I saw that you played in uh, Parsippany this year. You played a couple games. Is that right? I
1: played two games in Parsippany. It been, it's been a while. I lost the first. Uh, and then something clicked in me in the second. Like, oh, that's what chess is all about. And I managed to win the second game. So uh, I was uh, standing in for someone who couldn't play on the Sabbath And so I played his two games, and uh, I I was looking forward to going back in February. But apparently, it's not going to be held.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully next year. I'd love to meet you in person if if uh, that happens. I'd
1: love to also meet you. Um.
0: So. Just looking at you and hearing you talk about that, the fact that you're 86 and you're vibrant and have such a great memory of all these uh, historic encounters you had. It was
1: better. uh... Believe me, I wish it was better.
0: (laughs) Well, don't we all? But uh, do you have any uh, health advice, mental health, physical health for for our listeners?
1: Well, I don't smoke. I don't drink. uh, I don't exercise. (laughs) (laughs) I do drink coffee. I don't take drugs uh and uh, nor does my wife all of these things i did smoke at one point my wife's never smoked and she never drank coffee so she's too ahead of me but we've been married for 57 years and uh she's uh she gets up every morning and walks a couple of miles a day and you know uh, really keeps and you know she's not quite as old as me but she she's in much better shape than even i am so uh that's my secret. You know, okay. don't, don't smoke, don't drink, don't gamble. <laughs> Live <laughs> a good life. <laughs>
0: you're you're ruining all the fun though. Frank. <laughs> 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 um, so of course you're a media professor and you've written a book about Art, Orson Wells. Obviously you've written many books, uh, not just related to chess. So I've got to ask you about the, uh, the, uh, hot topic of the chess world. I don't know if you've watched Queen's Gambit or not, Frank, but everyone is discussing it. So I feel- oh, yes.
1: I I watched all of it and uh, I had read the book when it came out in 1983. And uh, uh, by the way, the, if I'm allowed to plug this, I don't know, but the Marshall on uh, November 21st is going to have a, a Zoom discussion and I'm going to be the host and leader of it because one of my master's degrees that I have is in film, so uh, the connection of film and chess. So we're going to have that on November 21st at 7 p.m. But uh, the, uh, I, I thought the uh, film was uh, almost identical to the book. Uh, it, 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 you know, the film was a little more exciting uh, mm-hmm. than the book. Uh, I, uh, when I read the book, I remember the first time, and even this time, I reread it recently. Uh, I felt. How does someone who doesn't play the game? How do they get through some of these games by just a description? And uh, that doesn't seem to bother. I've gotten emails from, uh, and and the same thing might apply to the film series. I got. I've gotten emails now from relatives and friends and how much they like it. And some of them don't know a pawn from a rook. And uh, so I'm excited that New York Times did three full-page stories, different stories on it. Uh, Howard turn mentioned it on yeah. his show last week. Uh, you know, all kinds of things are happening. As There was just like a little boomlet. Yeah. I, like a, like the Fisher boom. Of,
0: well, yeah. So- could, you com- could you compare them? Um,
1: well, we- a Fisher boom was incredible, you know. Within, within a week after the match was over, or even during the week, Bloomingdale's and Macy's sold out all of their chess sets. Everybody was playing chess. Everybody, people were calling the Marshall Chess Club and saying, uh, how can I get lessons? Uh, the Marshall Chess Club went up. We had uh, something like 300 members at the time. It went up to, according to the New York Times, I can't even believe this, but they say that went up to eight hundred members. I don't know where we would put everybody, but uh, you know everything was boom. Everybody was playing chess. You could see it being played on the stoops of New York and all over. People were tuning in on television, and some people. I mean, Jay Bonin, international master, said he became interested in the game by watching it on television, and that's what got him going. And a number of other people as well.
0: Yeah, Patrick Wolf, I know, was touched by that match. Of course, John Donaldson, the aforementioned. I know there's so many that wouldn't wouldn't have had spent their careers in chess, uh, were it not for that match. So but it's interesting to hear that what's going on is is incredible and it's fun to see. But there's, you know, attention is just um so um diffuse now. Like people just there's just so many things that people can be interested in that it would be hard to replicate the Fisher boom.
1: Well, it's a perfect thing for the quarantine age, now yeah. the pandemic age. Your home. What can we do tonight? Oh, well, we have this chest set in the back of the room, and look, this is what you know. I could see people getting influenced, and they are. Yeah, and and uh,
0: another thing that you mentioned in your in the, your archived interviews with Fred Wilson is that you'd had a couple uh, movie deals um, with, uh, with 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 um, excuse me for your books. Um, could could you tell us a little bit more about that? Because even, like, was this about the Fisher books, do you mind saying? Or
1: Well, my first, I got an offer for an option, and I received some money uh, for the Profile of a Prodigy. Uh, we've gotten no offers uh, for the film of Endgame, but I've gotten offers from some of my other books during the years. Options. People take options. And were these then...
0: other, sorry to cut you off, were these other chess books? Or...
1: No. Okay. No. No, so so uh, any event. Uh, I have an agent, and my agent is pushing now to see whether or not we can get a film
0: uh, yeah. at least
1: an option on Endgame.
0: It's tough, but though. The, his late years were so sad. You
1: know, my book is uh, it's it's been translated into twelve languages. Uh, the paperback and the Kindle is still selling, and uh, it's now selling even more. I think. What else could be? It has to be from the film, Netflix film. Right now it's selling more.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, and I was wondering like how much you could say about that because uh, book sales figures are often shrouded in mystery to those of us who are not chess authors. I mean, we know that if you write like an opening book, I mean, if you sell, say, 10,000 copies, you did amazing. But I know you made a conscious effort in Endgame to not not uh, dramatize the game so much and not include game scores. You wanted it to be readable for uh, just people with a passing interest in chess, but who wanted to hear the human side of Fisher. Um So, a book like that, like w- what sort of scale do do the sales uh, come down on?
1: Well, we well, we've sold well over thirty thousand copies. I mean. Uh, Uh, I don't know how many we sold right before when it came out, but it did make uh, the bestseller list a loss for not very long, but it it did enter the bestseller list. So uh, I'm very happy and surprised that it sold the way it did and and the amount of reviews I've gotten, hundreds of reviews and many interviews and stuff like that. So uh, uh, I'm happy. I'm yeah. Happy.
0: Well, your success is well deserved. I mean, I just read it well, for a second time, getting ready for the interview, and it's it's still a page turner, even knowing the story and reading it a second time.
1: Well, I teach and have taught writing for many, many years, and uh, you know, uh, I, I I spent some time at Harvard. At uh, I never matriculated uh, or anything, but I spent some time uh, studying the Neiman uh, Fellowship. Uh, Principles in some ways uh, of uh, creative nonfiction, and uh, and that's how I like to think of my book. It's it's creative nonfiction. It's it's I use some of the same techniques as a novelist, but without making anything up. The use of dialogue, the use of inner states. Well, how do I know how a person was feeling? I asked them. <laughs> <laughs> right, and they tell me. You know that kind of thing, and uh, so, uh, and and, uh, and a great amount of of that book, as far as I was concerned, were like little scenes that you could see in a film almost. So, uh, anyway, that that was my technique. I threw my heart and soul in it. I threw in everything I knew about Fisher, except the rumors that I just told you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Any other rumors we should know about? <laughs>
1: None that I would like to repeat. But, uh, <laughs> okay, uh, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, it's strange to say. Although I despise what Fisher has said about Judaism and about America, I really do. Uh, and uh, but I still miss him somehow. Wow. Yeah. You know, as as a person, I miss him.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, just as a chess fan, obviously not having known him, the. I I even have a tinge of guilt just being so fascinated because there's so many I mean you've you've written about sort of separating the art from the artist but there's so many people who are admirable like unequivocally admirable and that that's not the case with Fisher yet there's still this insatiable appetite to know more about him
1: Yeah it's uh one of my uh faculty members who was one of my committee members on my dissertation once said to me, and he wrote many biographies of people and stuff. He said, you know, when you get somebody, uh, you know, like a Herman Melville or a a Shelley or a Bobby Fisher or whatever. There's always going to be new things coming out about them and new perceptions. And I wouldn't be surprised that there are, I, I haven't checked the national dissertation list but i wouldn't be surprised that, that well i do know of one dissertation that was written about it uh, uh you know people are still studying his life
0: yeah i know i'm looking forward and i know you mentioned via email you're also looking forward to i am john donaldson's new I'm, book
1: i'm looking forward to john's uh, you know I, I i i'm really i really respect john i think he's a terrific guy and a, a, a relentless researcher
0: <laughs> that's and, for sure yeah
1: he went everywhere and did everything and looked at everything. And, uh, you know, he went to every place that Bobby went. And, uh, his book is going to be good. and I can't wait for it to come out. I yeah. ordered it way back in September.
0: Excellent. Um, and do, what are your favorite books uh, aside from that, whether chess or narrative nonfiction, as you mentioned?
1: Well, right now I'm reading almost too much about the Trump. Uh, oh my
0: goodness. Yeah. Let's not, let's it, not go you know, there.
1: <laughs> I can't stop reading them. I mean, every, you know, Bob Wood comes out or whatever, uh, a book about millennia a book, you know, uh, so I'm spending a great deal of time reading that. Uh, and uh, I like to read history books. I like to read books on the civil war and, uh, and go into it and, uh, there's so, much, so many books in so little time.
0: Yeah. Do you have a favorite chess book?
1: Um, favorite chess book. That's another hard one. Um, and maybe I would say my 60 memorable games. Yeah.
0: It's hard to argue with that, which I was also Ooh. going to ask you if you have a favorite Fisher book other than your own, but I guess that might check both of those boxes. Uh,
1: well, I have, uh, I have some Fisher books that I hate mm-hmm. like Brad Dara's book. Uh, but, um, uh, I, I don't know the answer to that.
0: Okay. And, so. and Frank, is there any, I, I also wanted to ask you, um, I don't have too many more questions. Um, I, I really appreciate your, your speak. You're taking so much time. Um, okay. is there anyone in your opinion that I should interview, um, like, uh, someone of your generation that has like tons, tons of stories from, from the, uh, the days of chess history.
1: I would say, uh, you might consider Asa Hoffman. Yes. Yeah. I know Asa. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's got uh, a million stories and he goes way back with Fisher, uh, and goes way back with chess, uh, you know, he's, and he's getting up there in age. So, uh, that's the one right off the top of my head um, uh, Gary Foreman I don't know if you know Gary he's a master player, he's a member of the Marshall he also has uh, a, a good memory and goes way back um, you uh, you might I. You know. are you interested in interviewing somebody you know who are into chess books, for instance. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, um, Andy Ansell. Mm-hmm. I don't know who he is.
0: Yeah, one of the biggest yeah. chess collection,
1: chess book collections in yeah. the world, right? Yep. David DeLucia, Jeffrey Tannenbaum. Um, they all have enormous collections. I think Gary Foreman also has an enormous collection. I mean, it's an interesting, uh, you know, I, I'm calling these guys all the time when I. You know, looking for a particular fact, and they'll, you know, they'll have the book or they'll know it.
0: Right. They,
1: they really know their stuff about chess. Amazing.
0: Um, so, before I let you go, Frank, bringing it back to Queen's Gambit, uh, I, and uh, again, so you said it was November 21st, 7 p.m. So, I encourage uh, if, if there's no capacity for a number of people that can attend. I don't
1: know. I have to talk to the executive director of the club and see how it's going to work. Okay. I don't know. Uh, what do they do with big Zoom crowds? Do they limit it to a certain number? I don't even know.
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly you can have more than a hundred, but I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't know, uh, I don't know yeah. how. I doubt
1: high- we'll get more than hundred, but we may because you know the announcement went out to the entire club, and we have you know almost four hundred members, so I don't
0: know. Yeah, much well, much. thousands of people will be hearing about this too, hearing hearing from this. <laughs> so, good. yeah, so, uh, but. So maybe we'll uh we'll try to before this comes out I'll try to get a little I'll coordinate with you and find out if if people like from the general public I'll can be watch. Happy to tell you. So I'll, I'll put it them. okay. So for listeners, I'll put that in the show notes. Um, so last thing, where would you rank Queen's Gambit as compared to other sort of uh, film representations of chess?
1: Um, way up there, you know, in the top. I wouldn't say it's the best of all, but I would say it's, 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 it's way up there. Um, you know, there, there were other films. Uh, another film just came out, by the way, uh, called Critical Thinking. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but th- that seemed to be a little redundant in that there are a lot of stories about somebody going to inner city schools and teaching kids and they become champions. Not that that's bad, right? Know, what they done, but uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to think. So, of, what
0: do you think is the best? You mentioned that it's it's not the best.
1: I'm trying to think. Um, there was a film called it was based on Stefan Zweig's book or book or, or novella called The Royal Game by Stefan Zweig, uh, but that's not the name of the film. And it's in German. Okay. It's, excellent. It's, it's absolutely excellent. Okay. Well, hard, hard to get even on DVD. I don't know if one can get it. Um, I put that way up there. There was also a film, I'm forgetting names, forgetting everything, um, that John Turturro played in uh, as a as a, Grandmaster who goes berserk. Was that, that
0: the illusion defense? Was that the the notebook yes, one?
1: Yes, 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 based on the Nabakov. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, the Illusion Defense. Thank you for that title. See, when you're younger, you can remember those things.
0: Well, it's it's like playing chess. You know, we've been going for 90 minutes. You can you can still you can still play really well, but it's just hard to last as long, I think. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel that at 43, so
1: <laughs> yeah, the illusion defense is, was, was was excellent. Uh but you know, a lot of a lot of films have been made of shows how crazy, you know, uh chess players could become. Whereas uh ch- and chess life, of course, uh I mean not chess life, um The Queen's Gambit. My only problem with the story, and I don't want to it would be a spoiler to say this, so I'm not gonna say it.
0: Okay. Well, I'll tell you one critique I happened upon today. Um, yeah. And this will, and this will be just a closing note. Grandmaster Peter Hein Nielsen, uh, Magnus Carlsen's uh, chief second, who's also been on the podcast was just mentioning that it was excellent storytelling, but he felt that, uh, and, and apologies for listeners who haven't seen it listeners. If you haven't seen it, you should definitely uh, watch it. Um, he yeah. felt that her ascent didn't have enough struggle. It didn't show that, that when you're a chess player, you i mean with the possible exception of bobby fisher um no one like everyone has slumps everyone has to to grind super hard whereas for for her it was just kind of straight to the top
1: it's an excellent perception it's an excellent observation uh i hadn't thought of it yeah i hadn't either it's good yeah i mean
0: yeah um, okay. Well, Frank, this has I, I had great expectations and this succeeded. This has been amazing. Uh, it's so incredible to hear your firsthand perspective of uh, so much chess history. So
1: thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor for me to be here.
0: Special thanks, as always, to my producer, Matthew Passy, and thanks to those who help continue to spread the word about Perpetual Chess, whether it's via a positive review on a podcast platform or telling a friend or however you choose to do it. You can also engage with the Perpetual Chess community. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at BennyFisho1 or join the Perpetual Facebook group and continue the conversation about the latest interview. For now, the Perpetual Chess Instagram page has gone back into retirement. But someday we will break the blockade and start marching up the board again. Last but not least, you can also email me through the podcast website or directly at ben at perpetualchesspod.com. But more than anything, I would like to express my gratitude to those who provide financial support to Perpetual Chess. Most of all, I want to thank Chessable for sponsoring the show. And to everyone who kicks in via PayPal or the Perpetual Chess Patreon page to support this community endeavor and allow me to sustain and continue to improve the show. So without further ado, I would like to give special thanks to the following people and entities. They are chessable.com, quality chess books, the Capital City Chess Club, the abysmal depths of chess blog, Adapta interactive web designs and services, Apprentice Twitch Channel, Andrew Alharji, Andrew Bach, Andy Ryerson, Anidi Deer, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, the Charlotte Chess Center, the Chess Central's Chess Blog, ChessMood.com, Chris Flanagan, Dan Hanlon, Daniel He, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, Derek Jones, I am Dimitri Schneider, Drake Domingue, I am Eric Rosen, Eric Tam, Ewan Richardson, Farah Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Glenn Downing, Greg Harfst, I am Greg Shahadi, Gregory Galuk, Guven Manet, James Kennedy, Jens Green, Jeremy Nielsen, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, King Selt, Lucio Casada Silva, the law offices of Stuart Katz, Leelaanalysis.com for cloud-based Leela Engine Analysis, Michael Kahn, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zelazmi, Mr. Mike Shahadi, the famous Mr. Dodgy. The Nerdnays Twitch channel. Peter Sodi, Play More Chess Academy of the Hamden Chess Club. Reuven Fisher. Robert Karcher. The Seattle Chess Club. Shane Unger. Stephen Kelty. Steven Martinez. Thomas Stanix. Thomas Tachenko. Todd Bryant of StrongChess.com. Todd Kennedy. The Vintage Patsers, which is a Chess.com improver group. Wayne Beam. William Hogarth. And I would also like to thank... Aaron Waffler, Ace Vallega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, FM Andre Terikov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Barry Hessian, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Brian Tillis, Bruce Scott, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Wayne Scott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabrie, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Costa Carras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Bleskicek, David Hamblin, David Cramley of Chessable, David Lazarus of LazmanChess.com, Dalen Shelton, Dennis Parrish, Dirk Decker, FM Donnie Ariel, not I am elect. Drake Domingue, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ethan Smith, Hallelujah, Cat, Ian Mason, Indrick Ryland, Fide Arbiter Felipe Melo Pereira, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Latart Lavois, Dr. Frank Tortoris, Frank Zanonis, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vanderveld, Gene Stewart, Gerard Barto, Giovanni Russo, Hans Schutt, Harash Srinivasan, Jacob Kovacs, Jacob Turan, Jacques Parry, James Aspinwall, James Bonastia, James Moore, Jason Willem, J.D. Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Hoyland, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, J.J. Stranad, Juan Almaguer, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fantaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, GM Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Pryor, Kior of the Lakeshore Chess Club, I am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Reiforth, Laura Boyovsky, Macaulay Peterson, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krog, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Miguel Araspiti, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Solon. Neil Bruce, Negmat Molojanov, Nicholas Isabel, Olaf Mueller, Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Pasi Passanin, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randy Temple, Ricky Grajava. Uh, Richard Hollenbach Robert Tichi, Robert Turner Roy Yearwood Ryan Berg The SayChess YouTube Channel Scott Doherty Scott McKinnon Sebastian Finsterwalder Shane Unger Stefan Roller Sven Retyuk WGM Tatyav Abrahamian Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com Tim Seymour Timothy Ha Tom Edsel Tomas Komanich Tony Rotella Tyron Price Vishnu Srikumar William Brock, William Juniper, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and Zivko Story Stoyanov. Thanks for listening, everyone. I will catch you guys next week.